And so tonight we're going to talk about the cost of kingdom discipleship or what, it, what it's like to be a disciple in the kingdom of God. Now, uh, really quickly, you might have used the word disciple or heard it used in a more normal way, not a churchy way. Like you might be a disciple of Apple, like you're, a, you're just a devoted disciple or devoted follower of Apple or Android or whatever it is, or a certain singer or a certain, um, I don't know, a certain uh, professor that you have. You're his little disciple. You kind of, you're his fan club. Disciple is, it's not a church word. It's a normal word. And all it means is uh, you're someone who kind of sits at the feet of someone or something and you learn from it. That's all disciple really means. And so uh, when Jesus calls his people disciples, what does that mean? So um, you can see down in your, uh, in the bulletin uh, where we're going to go with this in just the next few minutes. Um, A disciple is someone who's chasing what they love, immersed in what they loved, reordered by what they love and surrendered. To what they love. So why don't you stand up? We'll read uh, a little piece of Matthew and then a chunk of Luke. We'll get into this. <clears throat> In Matthew 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure that's hidden or buried in a field. A man found it and he covered it up. And in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has so he can get money to buy that field. So that's what Jesus uh, says the kingdom of heaven is like. And Luke, we get a different angle on it. Now great crowds uh, accompanied Jesus, so they'd been following him. And Jesus turned to the great crowds and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even hates his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross... And come after me, cannot be my disciple. Then he gives kind of two examples to prove why this is true. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count out the cost, whether you have enough to complete building it or not? Otherwise, when you've laid a foundation and you're not able to finish, everyone will see it and begin to mock, saying, This man began to build and he's not able to finish. Or think about it this way. What king going out to fight another king in war won't sit down first and deliberate whether he's able to, with 10,000, to meet the king who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you, any of you, who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, as Brittany uh, has asked you, uh, we pray. Uh, what we need tonight is actually to hear from you. Uh, and so uh, please move me aside. Please clear my mind. Um, please um, let what is of you reach your people. Your sheep know your voice and you know your sheep. So we pray tonight they would hear your voice and be encouraged by it. And we would be convicted by it too, as this is a very convicting passage. It was hard to wrestle with it and be wrestled by it today with you, Jesus. And I pray that you give grace to us as now we enter into that. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So in 1848, there was this guy building a sawmill in Sacramento, California. And old school sawmills, they had this big water wheel that like turned the saw blade. And so he was in a creek and he's installing this giant water wheel and he looks down in the water and he sees gold. 
And at first, word doesn't travel very fast. He tells a few people. Eventually, a guy named um, Sam Bannon finds out about it, and he's the one that just screams it from the rooftops. There's gold in that creek. And from that point on, um, Sacramento, California, but really the whole world has changed because people drop what they're doing, literally drop what they're doing. There's accounts of, um, sh- of crew members taking the little like lifeboat on a ship in some of the harbors and taking it to shore and just abandoning the ship in the harbor. Uh, there's newspapers that had to shut down for a certain amount of time because all the reporters dropped what they were doing, left town to go to where the creek was and to start uh, panning for gold. There's people that just left their homes and their jobs. There's people that took ships. There's people that crossed North America to get to California for the gold rush. That's how much they were in love with gold. They would leave everything else behind to get to that gold. The point here is that you follow what you love. That's not very novel. That's pretty obvious. You chase what you love. You follow what you love. If you were at Fall Conference a couple of weeks ago, Chris Horn, the speaker, was talking about, this is probably the key thing I've brought away from that. You might know, if you're familiar with the Bible, that our hearts were built to love things, particularly built to love God. And the loves, the things you love and the things you hate, are the reason why you do what you do. The things you love and the things you hate are the reason you avoid certain things or certain people. It's the reason you chase certain things or certain people. But our hearts aren't just kind of like placid lovers that just sit there and admire people or things from a distance. Our hearts, in a sense, have legs. They instinctively run after what they love. It's like a golden retriever in a tennis ball. Your heart just doesn't just say like, man, that ball looks like it would be really fun to play with. Before you know it, your heart is already chasing after it. Just like a golden retriever was made to retrieve a tennis ball, you're made to pursue and run after the things that you love. Chris brought up the example at Fall Conference of uh, you don't just get crushes on guys or girls, right? You don't just secretly admire them from a distance. You start creeping on them, like you, you find pictures of them, you ask friends about them, you try to make sure that your path to class is going to cross their path to class. Your eyes change where you look. You pursue that person, even if it's in a kind of a subtle, passive way. Before you know it, your heart is already off to the races, chasing what it loves, or avoiding, running away from what it hates. That's what our hearts are like. It's the same way um, with our attractions with kind of these spiritual things. It's the same way with these existential things in our lives. Our hearts don't just love them from a distance. Our hearts chase them. Now, you don't have to be a historian to know that none of those men who moved to California, none of those women who dropped what they were doing and went to that, did it because they loved gold. Gold is really impractical. It's heavy. I mean, maybe it's pleasing to the eye, but that probably gets old after about three seconds. You're like, okay, I've seen it. That's awesome. It feels nice. They didn't love gold. They loved what gold could do for them, right? No one went to California. No one got on a ship to get there for the sake of the gold. They, got, they went there because the gold would get them closer to what they were after, which was whatever. I mean, it depended on the person. Some people were after the finally financial security. Finally, I don't have to work in the fields. You know, from 5 in the morning when the sun comes up until dark. 
Finally, uh, we can have a predictable future instead of living paycheck to paycheck. Finally, we can be wealthy. Finally, we can have a house and not be sharecroppers or whatever else. They didn't love the gold. They loved what the gold could do for them. That's why they were chasing the gold. So Jesus is at a moment in his ministry where he's very popular. Luke says here, great crowds or very large crowds were chasing him, following him. And Jesus literally in verse 25 turns around and says to the people chasing him and following him, his disciples. He turns around and he starts saying some things that you think would kill the buzz or kill the crowd. He says things to them like, why are you after me? Why are you chasing me? Why are you following me? Because he wants his people to have to kind of wrestle with this. Are you after me? Or are you after what I can get you closer to? You know, just like the gold rush. Are you after me because it's me? Are you after me for me because I'm Jesus, because of who I am? Or are you after me because you think I can get you closer to what you really love? Which could be, I don't know, like um, getting your relationships fixed. It could be not struggling anymore. It could be getting healing in some area of your life. It could be just an easier life. It could be comfort. These people had a thousand different reasons of why they were after him. He mentions a couple in particular. He zeroes into this family stuff, like relationship stuff. We're in a Western culture. I know in southern New Mexico it's a little bit different here. Like, as Westerners, we're individualists, but as southern New Mexicans, we're very communal, family-oriented. So we kind of straddle this east-west. Like, eastern cultures are very family-oriented. They're communal. They're about being with other people. They're about family. And Middle Eastern first century was all about family. If you have any Iranian friends or Middle Eastern friends, it's still this way. And so when Jesus just picks up one example to say, you know, it's kind of like this or this area of your life, he was picking up the most precious area of your life, the most impactful, the most important, the most precious piece of your life. Today he might, uh, he might put his thumb, instead of like the family stuff, he might put it on self-actualization or you know, becoming the best you. That's the thing that's maybe most precious to us or your future plans or how other people see you, their, their opinion of you. Maybe that's where he would push his finger. But in this culture where he pushes his finger is the family thing. As if to ask him, are you following me because family troubles and I'll make those better? Are you following me because you want a wife? You want a husband? Are you following me because you want kids? Are you following me so relationships get easier, so there's not as much drama? Are you following me for me? That's why he puts his finger on that stuff in verse 26. This is the question at the outset of this that everyone has to ask. Uh, We're all disciples. This is a passage about being Jesus' disciple. That's why he says, if you want to be my disciple, he knows you're disciples of a lot of other stuff. But he wants to talk about, do you want to be his disciple? If you are his disciple, what does that involve? Well, at first, it involves us asking the question, why am I even chasing him in the first place? 
Do I want to come to God on my terms? It's kind of like a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was a guy who came to Jesus on his terms. Nicodemus wanted his life left intact. He didn't want Jesus to meddle in it, to mess with it. He just wanted Jesus to kind of sprinkle it with some goodies on top, a little bit of extra. But he didn't want Jesus to kind of fundamentally kind of take some stuff out and put some new stuff in and reorganize everything. He came to Jesus on his terms, and Jesus didn't play ball. He didn't have anything to do with it, right? Jesus just starts systematically dismantling Nicodemus, and Nicodemus eventually uh, comes back to Jesus years later. But in that moment, it was a pretty, uh, pretty odd encounter for Nicodemus. Well, it's the same way with discipleship. You can't approach Jesus on, on our terms. You can't follow Jesus and expect your life to remain intact or your status quo, relationally or familially, or in terms of your job or your friends on campus or your dreams for the future, you can't expect those things to remain intact and be a disciple of Jesus. Because to do so is to come to him with your demands. I'll follow you if you do this for me. Or I'm on board with you as long as you don't whatever else. Or we might not be that direct, but we're like, I'm going to follow Jesus so that, fill in the blank. So that one of these things that I really love will get put back into order. And then we we reach the conviction of, am I really after God because God's going to get me closer to my real gods? The things I really love, the things I really worship. And that's a place where this kind of starts with a heart check and with some conviction. You've been following the Harvey Weinstein stuff. I don't know if you saw it. He's this, they call it Harvey Wood because he was the producer of like everything. How many Oscars did he win in his career? Or what? 300? 300, 300 times his movies or people he cast in his movies won Oscars. He ran Hollywood. And he's gone from like king of Hollywood to a pariah in the world in about two weeks. Well, he wrote an email right when this was reaching its apex last week. He sent it out to all of his friends who are other like kingpins of other um, studios and he was like begging them he said please call my board members don't let them fire me and he said I'll do whatever it takes I'll go to therapy I'll go I'll do inpatient rehab I'll take six months off I I know I have a problem problem with sex addiction all this other stuff like I'll do you know I'll go to therapy I'll do whatever but don't let them take my job from me call him he said please send a letter today do it This is a guy who's been accused by a lot of reputable people of raping them, of molesting teenage girl actors from as far back as the 70s throughout his entire career, doing the most unbelievably vulgar stuff, even up to a few months ago. And here is this guy still demanding to be dealt with on his terms. He still thinks he holds the cards. He still thinks he's in control of his life. And he's coming to people and making demands of them under the appearance of humility, under the the appearance of, I want to change. But do you see the problem there? Like if you were one of his accusers, if you were one of his victims, you'd be outraged to hear this. That you're still, you don't get it, you still don't get it. Now, that's a pretty pretty distant uh, metaphor example for what Jesus is talking about here. But the principle remains that we come to Jesus even as his people... On his terms, we submit to his agenda, 
Because to do anything different is to not be his disciple. It's to demand that he becomes my disciple. Right? Someone who follows my agenda, someone who follows my dreams, my aspirations. Think about it this way. You can't write your life script and invite God in to have the lead role and to win the day for you. Discipleship, following Jesus, living with Jesus as someone who's been made right with him or received his grace. What that looks like is he writes your life script and he has the lead role. And at best, we're a supporting role if even that. That's the kind of submission that he is, he is saying that we need to count the cost of that before you get into this. Before you go any further, it's like stop, pull over, and check yourself in this area. Tim Keller says you don't fit Jesus into your goals. He becomes your new goal. You don't fit Jesus into your aspirations. He is your aspiration. You don't fit him into your pre-planned life. He becomes your life. Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He says, I have died, and now all that is in me is Christ. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, he must deny himself. That's what he means. You must hate even your own life. He's not saying you have to hate yourself like in an emotionally like self-loathing, like, man, it's a really good thing if you think really horribly about yourself. He's not saying that. He's saying, relative to your love for me, you must hate your life. You must deny yourself. There must be a parting of ways with your agenda to be available to receive and pick up his agenda and even hear it. And so think about this. If that's, if that's what it is, and if this first point is true that's, that's uh, in the bulletin, that a disciple is someone who chases what they love, we talked about how we've got to ask the question, well, then why am I chasing these things? Even why am I chasing Jesus? Because we're part of the great crowd that Jesus turns around and says, what are you after? Me or the other gods I can get you closer to? This is super uncomfortable to, to all honesty. I was a little bit glad I was losing my voice because I was like, I kind of don't want to talk about this. This was unsettling. I read, a, I read a passage and I found out the passage was reading me. I was examining, I found out it examined me. And it got me asking, why am I, why, why this path I'm on? So it's a heart check and it's a moment where I get to come back to Jesus, knowing his grace and saying, Jesus, in all honesty, a lot of days the reason I walk with you, I follow you, I talk about you, is because you get me closer to what I really want, which is a controllable life. How do you change what you love? How do you change what you're chasing? If you're like me and this convicts you and unsettles you. There's a guy named Stephen Garvey who wrote a book called Visions of Vacation. He says this short little quote. He says, we only truly learn when we indwell what we want to learn. Or you could say, you only really learn what you immerse yourself in. We can't understand anything that matters standing on the outside looking in whether it's bicycle riding or marriage. It's only when we step into that that we begin to know and understand. This is the whole point of foreign study, right? Or going to another place that if you want to learn their language. You've got to go there. You've got to be immersed in it if you really want to learn it. 
We can talk about what marriage would be like for you one day. You'll never know what marriage is like until you're married. You can talk as long as you want about what it would like to be like to live with your best friends. You'll never know what it's like until you've already signed the lease and moved in and live with them for a couple of years or a couple of months. There's a commitment before that. There's an immersion if you really want to know what it's like. And he says we can't understand anything that matters standing on the outside looking in. You can't change what you love. You can't change what you're after, what you're chasing from the outside looking in. You can't do it from a safe distance. Person after person in the Gospels tried to do this with Jesus. Nicodemus tried to do it with Jesus. How does a man enter the kingdom of God, he asks him. Nicodemus at some level is curious and wants to change what he's after. And Jesus says you have to be born again. Jesus says like the most intimate, face-to-face, personal thing you can imagine. Nicodemus wanted safe distance. Can you fix me from a distance, Jesus? Jesus says, I, I, I won't change what you love, change what you're chasing from a distance. I'm going to immerse you in a new love, in a new object worthy of your chasing. That's how this is going to cha- that's how this is going to change you. He says, that's how this is going to change you. Jesus immerses us in his love. He immerses you in his love. He, he floods you in it. He submerges you in it. He lets you taste it and experience it. And then that superior love, his love for you and your growing love for him begins to put all of your other loves in perspective. It puts them in their right place. Keller has another helpful thing here. He says, all day long when the sun is out, the stars are still there, right? Even though you can't see them, they're there. The only reason we see them at night is because the sun is gone. The sun is the superior, overpowering light. And when it is present, it, it washes out all the other lights. It doesn't extinguish them. It doesn't annihilate them. It doesn't make them go away. They're still there, but it floods them with a superior light and so you can't see them. When Jesus talks about loving him more than your mother, your father, your your family situation, your own dreams, your academic pursuits, your plans for you, your little hobbies, when he talks about loving him more than that, he's not saying you can't have hobbies. He's not saying it's bad to be ambitious and have a plan for your life. He's not saying comfort is evil. But he's saying the way you were made is that he would be such a supreme and superior and overpowering love and beauty in your life that it shines so brightly that all the other loves in your life, which remain there, disappear relative to him. He's not after stamping out the other good things in our life. He made them and he gave them to us. But our superior love for him reorders those things. How do you begin to taste that? You come to him and he immerses you in it. We'll talk about this in just a second when we end. But this is what Jesus means when he says, this love for him and his love for you reorders all your other loves. This is true whether your greatest love in life is heroin or the new Netflix show or a person or Jesus. Your supreme love will reorder and relativize all of your other loves. For the drug addict, if you have an addict in your family, you know this is true. Their love of that substance and what it gets them closer to 
reordered and reorganized all their other loves. Your family was one of those loves that got reorganized and pushed down the line and hurt. You know this when your friend finds the new guy or the new girl they're all about. Their love for you diminishes. It gets reordered. When you finally find that thing you want to major in, your interest in all the other subjects diminishes. When Jesus says you must hate your mom and your dad and even hate your own life, he's not saying you have to hate your mom and your dad in this vicious, vengeful way. He's saying your relationship with your family, the closest people in your life, ideally, compared to your relationship with him, should look like hatred. Such intimacy, such interaction, such dependence, such love between you and Jesus that all of your other relationships almost looks like hatred compared to that. That's what he means when this superior love reorders all of your other loves. You want to know when simplicity does happen? It's when that happens. The peace we're all after and we're trying to download the next app to bring it to us, to like organize our life, that doesn't bring it. Having your loves in a proper order, that's what brings peace and harmony. Because even when the crap hits the fan, life doesn't shake as much because your sight of Jesus is still there and your love for him and his love for you is still there. The last thing is a disciple is someone who surrenders control to the one they love. And this is also true. If you've been listening, it almost proves itself. You surrender. You give yourself to what you love, right? I do too. We do this romantically. We do this vocationally. The job you love, you give your life away to it. We surrender ourselves and we give up control to the people we trust and love the most. This is something that I heard preached at church on Sunday and then uh, the freshman... Uh, we talked about this last night in the uh, freshman Bible study, but there's this short little passage in a tiny little book called Titus. The Apostle Paul is writing and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting For our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify for himself a people for himself. Do you hear Paul? Like, I know that just sounds like Bible talk to you, but did your ears catch Paul's affection for Jesus? He's just, he's jumbling up all of these words and all of this praise on Jesus, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us or to buy you back from all of these futile, trivial pursuits that get you nowhere but stuck in a cul-de-sac. That you would belong to Him and that you would be zealous for what He is zealous for, that you would become more like Him. Every time Paul talks about Jesus, Paul's love for Jesus overflows because Paul knows Jesus' love for him overflows. And this is the kicker. What is discipleship with Jesus like? Is it a life of kind of moral imperatives? Is it it a life of him saying, and you need to fix this, this, and this, and stop doing that and start doing that? Paul says the grace of God 
is what trains you. Of all the tools in God's toolbox, what he comes back out with to train you and to shape you and to make you a new person isn't law. It's not anger. It's not impatience. It's not a short temper. It's not a raised voice. It's not shame. It's not comparing you to other Christians and saying, they get it, why can't you? It's mercy. It's patience. It's grace. Of all the things God could use to train you up as his disciple, what has he selected? Grace. We'll end with this illustration. We talked about it with the freshman last night. Do you have that great teacher or coach or mentor that made a huge difference in your life? The person that it's maybe the only teacher in your past you remember, it's the only coach, and they loved the subject matter or the sport so much that you began to love it. Like their love of calculus or their love of history was contagious. It became your love. They were so passionate about it. The reason they stand out amongst all of your other teachers, mentors, coaches, or whatever, is for a lot of different reasons. They had to have been patient with you, right? They can't have been the the overbearing teacher who expected you to be here when you were here and just got pissed at you that you weren't progressing fast enough. They had to be the coach or the teacher who met you where you were and started simple and said, okay, look, I'm not going to coach you this week how to run that five-mile race. We're going to work on how you breathe so you don't get cramps or shin splints. Or the, the trumpet instructor in middle school band didn't start with, here's how you can be this world-renowned trumpeteer or whatever. They start with, here's how you move your fingers on the three pedals. They start simple. They were inspiring. They were encouraging. They were patient. They were generous. And they were firm. They didn't budge an inch on the goal. You wanted to give up because it was hard and they wouldn't let you. You wanted to throw in the towel and they got in your face. You got discouraged and they were in your corner pushing you on. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? This is how I disciple my people. Those coaches, those mentors, those teachers are a itty bitty tiny little glimmer of what Jesus is like and how he coaches and trains his people. He excels at this. And you want to know what kind of people he calls to be his disciples? For the sake of time, I won't turn there, but turn your Bible one page to Luke 15. It says the drunkards, the sinners, the tax collectors, and the whores were following Jesus, and the Pharisees were getting pissed about it. Why does he hang out with sinners? Those are the people Jesus calls to be his disciples. This isn't a gang for the people who've got it together. It's a gang for people who need to be made new, who need grace, who need to be trained like that. But before you follow him, he says, count the cost and know what you're getting into and know why you're chasing him. Is it because you want him? Or you want all of these lesser, pitiful little gods that you think he'll get you closer to. He will not play ball with that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this word from you. We pray that uh, only what is of you will stick. Everything else will be forgotten and dismissed and pushed aside. But don't let your words, don't let your truth be pushed aside or rationalized away or dismissed.
or forgotten. Let it stick and let it do its work in our heads and in our hearts, we pray. We want to be disciples who love you and follow you. Help us in that and help us to believe the gospel, that it is grace that changes us, grace that makes us right with you. Amen.